Thanks for listening to another special edition of the Adult in the Room podcast. I've got a brief update on Pastor Anatoly Kaluzhny in Kiev, Ukraine. Earlier this week, I spoke with him the day that the Russian incursion came, which then broke out into an all-out invasion. The interview was done by phone because the apps we attempted to use did not work. Facebook Messenger did not work. Facebook's WhatsApp did not work for him. We attempted Telegram, but nothing was working well for us or at all for us, except the phone line. So I pressed record, and what you heard was our episode entitled Waiting for Leviathan. Please stop everything and go listen to that episode. Now, here's the update on Anatoly. A friend of mine spoke with him on Thursday, the day after the three-front assault on Ukraine. The Russians have been flying fighter jets over Kiev, and at this time... When we recorded this particular episode, Chernobyl had just fallen. Here's what my friend reports. Anatoly was about to lead an online prayer meeting for all Ukraine churches. He said a Russian jet flew over his home yesterday within 30 meters. Rockets are landing in and around Kiev. He also said he can no longer leave Kiev but needs to stay to shepherd his flock. They really appreciate our support and our prayers. He says his family's alive, he's alive, the church is alive. Uh, For how much longer, we don't know. But if you heard the previous episode, you know what could and probably will befall the people and institutions and the church because of how it's done in Russia. He gave us a full update of what the church is like in Russia. Listen especially for the FSB Connections with different church organizations. Really, really interesting and harkens back to the Soviet Union days. And I don't want to scare anybody. I I don't believe in all this war porn stuff. I don't believe anything that's coming out of Ukraine right now, except what Anatoly has told us and what we can see with our own eyes. Because in the fog of war, there's bad information flying all over the place. And that means we need to stand by for just a second. Breathe in and do not believe the first report of everything going on. Okay, we went to air shortly after Chernobyl fell. Anatoly is not only a wonderful man of God, he's brave. So before the invasion, I spoke with a candidate for U.S. representative in Washington state, Joe Kent. And you'll hear that in a moment. Then on this episode, I speak with parent activist Julie Barrett, on some hair-raising anti-parent legislation coming to your state, if it isn't there already. She's the head of the Conservative Ladies of Washington. Sounds very nice. She's a a fighter, man. Now, because Ukraine is under attack, I bring you first my interview with Joe Kent, who's running to unseat doctrinaire Republican Jamie Herrera-Butler. When she voted to impeach President Trump, knowing all the political chicanery behind it, Joe jumped into the race. He said, oh, hell no, I'm getting in. He's a retired Army Special Forces operator and retired CIA paramilitary operative. His wife apparently worked for the NSA, which you'll hear about. She did so in Syria in support of a Delta Force unit. Holy crap. She was a badass. She was killed. He's a gold star husband and the father of two motherless boys. 
You've seen Joe all over national media as being an America first candidate. He's on Fox News all the time and who knows where else. Again, I spoke with him before the invasion, but this interview still holds up. I talked to Joe first and afterwards, Julie. Please enjoy it. Joe Kent is a candidate for Congress in Washington State's 3rd Congressional District. He's a former special operator with the Army, a Green Beret. He's a former CIA paramilitary special operator, and he has been endorsed by none other than Donald Trump. Kent is also a Gold Star husband, having lost his wife in combat. Being a Gold Star uh, family member is not easy, but yet here he is running for office. She worked with the Special Forces Unit through her job with the NSA, I think. Uh, Joe Kent runs for office under an America First banner, and it's so great to have you on. So Jamie Herrera Butler is a person I've supported in the past, and maybe you even did too. But there are a couple of things that she did that I believe you believe were way over the line for a congressional representative in that district. Joe Kent, please explain why you're running. Yeah, so I never intended on running for Congress, like you said in that great introduction, a little bit over 20 years, uh, fighting our nation's wars. Uh, I decided to step aside um, after my late wife was killed, move back here to the Pacific Northwest, take care of our kids where I'm from. Um, but then basically, at, I think 2020 hit with a vengeance, watching the COVID lockdowns, the way they were weaponized, the way the riots destroyed our cities, and then just seeing that Jamie Herrera Butler refused to do anything. And then the, the way the election went, the way the election was stolen, Jamie Herrera Butler refused to fight back against that. She voted for certification. And then... <clears throat> When after the riot on January 6th without examining the timeline or really looking at the full scope of what happened, she just jumped in with the mainstream media and the Democrats and, and voted for the impeachment of President Trump, uh, volunteered to be the star witness in the Democrats, you know, sham trial in the Senate. Uh, so seeing all that, I felt that we were really on the cusp of, of losing our country. So I didn't see that there was any clear plan from the Republican establishment to take out Jamie Herrera Butler. So I decided that, hey, look, I, I'm going to have to explain this to my children someday, um, the state that our country is in. And I'm going to have to look in the eyes and explain to them this is the country she gave her life for and the, and the state that we're in right now. I, I just can't do that. So I decided to, hey, I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to Google, how do you run for Congress? Um, I had some connections to the Trump administration through some of the work I had done with them on the campaign trail and my personal relationship with Trump's family. Um, so reached back out to them and said, hey, I'm, I'm going for it, guys. I live here in this district and I'm going to do everything I can to, to take this seat and hold it for America first. Had you ever really considered running for office before? No, I had not. No, I, I had a I had done a job interview to go work in a second Trump administration. I was going to go work on the, the National Security Council. Um, I thought that was going to be my next you know portion of my service to this country. And then just watching all that uh, kind of go the way it did, I felt like, hey, this is this is a, a crisis situation that we're in right now, and we need elected officials that understand the stakes and understand the way that the uh, the establishment's being weaponized against the American people. So to me, it just seemed like another call to service. Has the establishment been weaponized against you? Yeah, I mean, I would say so. I mean, I, I'm doing the um, the the non-common thing of, of primarying a sitting incumbent. So, you know, I, I think that the Republican establishment, they, they, they're they not happy about that. They're, they're in an awkward position where they know that Trump is very popular, so they don't want to come out overtly against me. Um, but, you know, Kevin McCarthy supporting Jamie Herrera Butler, all that. So, I mean, but really, my, my American story of fighting our nation's wars, I, I think, really speaks to the way that our establishment, Republicans and Democrats, has just, you know, failed the American people um, of 
a policy failure and really the hubris of that establishment led to my wife being killed in Syria a month after Trump tried to get us out. Um, so I feel like on, on every level, whether it's economics, whether it's foreign policy, whether it's the weaponization of the national security state, that the establishment, our permanent ruling class has been weaponized against the American people. What do you think about the run up to the Ukraine war that we're seeing? I think we're in an extremely dangerous position right now. We're at the confluence of the political team, Joe Biden's political team, realizing that he is extremely weak domestically for all the obvious reasons, whether it's the price of the pump, whether it's bare shelves, whether it's the COVID narrative imploding. Um, they realize he's weak and they're going to try to use a foreign crisis, a drummed up foreign crisis to try and divert people's um, attentions away from the failings of Joe Biden, the failing of the stock market right now, the way the inflation is, you know, really taking its toll on the American people. They want a diversion. And then here comes the military industrial complex who's always looking for their next war. Neocons on the right, neolibs on the left, and then all the defense contractors that are really eager to whisper in any presidency or, hey, we need to go to war in country X. And look, there's a huge um, apparatus that's been designed either through a combination of the Russian collusion narrative all the way going back to the, the relics of the Cold War. Putin is somebody who the, the establishment really wants to fight because a conventional war against Russia would result in a huge boom for the military industrial complex. We're at the confluence right now of a completely reckless and callous political uh, class working for Joe Biden and the military industrial complex. And I think it's completely, it's not in America's best interests. Um, and also we've taken no actions. If you accept the premise, which I don't, that Putin, him invading Ukraine is like the end of the world, then there's certain things we should be doing, like making ourselves energy independent. We should be sanctioning. Yeah. We should never should let the Nord Stream 2 go through. We should be leaning on our European partners. But instead, we've gone right to war. And that just shows how political and, and frankly, just dangerous this is. This has been a big political bunch. I will say that for sure. Oh, yeah, I absolutely. Mean, I mean, and, and the thing is, it's, it's, it's scary because we continue to add on this very reckless rhetoric and then we continue to send troops into the region. And at some point, these political uh, maestros behind the, the curtains that think that they're running this great diversion tactic, they lose control. And this is going to come down to American forces, you know, squared off with Russian forces. And then who knows what happens? A Russian private and American private having a disagreement or a misunderstanding and shooting at each other. That's how world wars start. It's happened before in Europe. And so I think that this is just incredibly dangerous and reckless of the Biden administration for them to do. I'd like to see Congress take bold, decisive action and freeze off funding for any additional uh, deployments. They've already sent troops over there. They have. I know. I would like, yeah, I'd like to see the funding cut off. I mean, when Trump tried to get us out of wars, Congress froze off fundings to leave troops, you know, at war. I would like to see Congress act that decisively to prevent us from getting into a war. You know, you have had a sort of a friendship with uh, Donald Trump, but it was born of blood and it was uh, a friendship you did not seek out. Tell us a little bit about that, if you would. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I first met President Trump at Dover. And as most people know, that's where you go to receive your loved ones remains when they've been killed overseas fighting for our country. So um, I was waiting to receive my wife's remains and uh, an aide for President Trump came by and said, hey, the president's here and he's willing to meet with the families of the fallen. My wife was killed with three other Americans. Um, so I said, yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll take him up on that because I was an, I was a very early Trump supporter. So was my late wife and mainly because of the way that he went after the national security state and then the, the Republican foreign policy, the, the interventionist mentality. And so I took the opportunity to meet President Trump. Um, I thought it was going to be like with a whole bunch of different people, you know, a bunch of his handlers and whatnot. But it was just me and Trump one on one. And he was very compassionate, very kind in a way that you would expect any real human being to be, not the not the way he's portrayed in the media. Um, and I said, hey, you don't know who I am, but I've been fighting these wars for my entire adult life. 
under two different presidents before you, and you're getting it right in a way that no one else is, but you're being thwarted at every level. And this is right after Secretary of Defense Mattis resigned, Brett McGurk resigned, a bunch of other unelected mm. bureaucrats. And I said, look, you, you're you getting it right, but the the senior to mid-levels in the Department of Defense, the intelligence community, they're actively working against you. And I, I figured that that was like my cash out moment because I, I was just going to move back to the Northwest where I'm from, raise my kids and, and, and you know, kind of just focus on that. And I thought nothing else would come of it, but about Two weeks later, I got a call from someone in his inner circle that said, hey, the president really was interested in what you had to say. Could you come back here to D.C. and, you know, talk to us? And so I did. I wrote some white papers on counterterrorism in the Middle East. And then I started working because I was a you know free citizen. I was out of the government. I just started speaking out as much as I could on behalf of Trump's foreign policy, worked on the Trump 2020 campaign. And then after the, impe- the election went the way it did and the impeachment vote happened, I, uh, I just reached back out and said, hey, I, I actually live in, in the district of one of the impeachment voters and I'm going to go for it. Um, and so that's that's kind of how I got my, my foot in the door for the, uh, the Trump endorsement. It's not as if you went to war initially um, after you were inspired to join the military by Black Hawk Down. But, uh, you know, you, you spent a lot of years, you've lost your wife in this in this latest war. And, you know, it seems to me that a lot of people in your position are now just saying, come on, you guys, can we be more strategic and more tactical? Uh, tactical in how we choose our battles. I mean, and that's yeah. all we're asking. Make some sense of it. I mean, is there anything that you've done over the past 20 years that you said, no way, we shouldn't have done that? A lot of it. I mean, I, I think I, on the, as a guy on the ground, I made the best tactical decisions that I possibly could, but I always questioned really from the time that we um, told the Iraqi army, told the sitting Iraqi military that if they were affiliated with the Ba'ath Party, that they were all fired. Uh, yep. At that moment, when I was a 23-year-old Green Beret sergeant, I was like, I don't know if these guys that are above us know what the hell they're doing, because this seems like a really bad idea. But I mean, really, every iteration of the Iraq war, um, us staying in Afghanistan, uh, we had to expand into Syria to take out ISIS, but even that really is tied to the initial invasion of Iraq. I, I think we've been getting foreign policy wrong for a very long time because we've really just been, you know, putting it all on the shoulders of the Department of Defense, which I think is is very wrong. So I, I would like to see a much more restrained um, and pragmatic foreign policy, as opposed to uh, our, our starting point being that we need to be at war in as many countries as possible, trying to remake these countries in our image. I just think that that's a it's a failed premise that is just simply never worked. I wish I could say that it worked because I tried like heck, you know, I, I was a true believer. I tried to make it work and it simply doesn't. And it's and it's actually gotten our country in a much worse position. So I would like to see us focus on our nation first and have a much more restrained foreign policy. Do you have people in Congress with whom you'd like to serve in the future who hold the same views as you? Yeah, I mean, the, the America First, uh, I guess, caucus, it's not an official thing, but uh, Matt Gates, he's, he's done a great job of being strong on defense, but at the same time, very pro-restraint and very pragmatic. Um, Thomas Massey, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, Rand Paul in the U.S. Senate. I think these are the guys that have consistently been been right on foreign policy and how and why we use force. And I'm, I'm glad to see that this more restrained foreign policy outlook is kind of the direction that the Republican Party is heading. I think we still need to force that on the establishment because I think if, mm-hmm. if given their, you know, if given their way, the establishment would continue to have us at war in some of these places. But yeah, I, I think the, those folks have done a great job of really championing that uh, restraint. Would revoking the AUMF be a first step in doing that, maybe getting congressional approval for all wars? Absolutely. Yeah. So the AUMF that we've been operating under, uh, the, the Al-Qaeda one from 2001 and then the Iraq war one from 2002, they they need to be um, – they need to be scrapped and we need to have the president come back at us 
and ask for any additional authorities. That's why I'm so against these troop deployments to Ukraine for everything I outlined. But also, look, don't let us just slide backwards into a war merely by executive fiat. This needs to be something, I mean, in the Constitution, Congress are the only ones that can declare war. So if Biden feels so strongly about us deploying troops and potentially getting into a war with Russia, his first stop is Congress. It's not deploying troops over there. He should be going to Congress and saying, like, hey, I, I want the authority to do this. And I want every single congressman who are the direct, who are closely connected with the people of America to put their name on the dotted line and say, yes, we want you to go. We, we give you the authority to do this. Um, so, yeah, I, I think repealing the AUMFs is absolutely essential. I wouldn't sign. I won't sign a national defense authorization until we vote on those AUMFs again. Joe Biden wants to send troops, in fact, has to Ukraine already. D- did he make sure they were all properly vaccinated and uh, passed the purity test? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure that was requirement number one. I mean, we're, we're purging the military right now. They, they tried to do it based on the ideology, the um, the extreme, the so-called extremist stand down, which I don't think has netted yet any extremists. Um, and then also the vaccines. I mean, we've, we've been we forced the, the vaccine mandates on our healthiest and youngest you know, profession being being a soldier um, without, you know, their without their consent. So, yeah, I, I think we're we're doing damage, very damaging things to our military right now. And our military is the most battle hardened military we've ever had in the history of our country. The all volunteer force just fought two decades of war and we're purging a lot of that experience right now because of the extremist stand down and because of the vaccine mandates it's just it's just criminal to do to these brave americans when we tried to set up a new way of doing things in iraq ryan crocker was put in charge and he began the debathification or maybe he tried to clean it up i can't remember who what dummy was in charge at that point but the fact is what's that paul brimmer oh paul brimmer god bless him um they're trying to do the same thing in the united states that's exact. I mean, yeah, that's exact. I'm glad you know that because not a lot of people draw that parallel. I, I say that a lot of times and people, people don't know what the bath party is. But yeah, it's, it's debathification. I mean, we're saying that basically if you're a conservative and you know, you maybe had a Trump flag or Gaston sticker or, or whatever, like we are going to start looking at you and your ideology and move towards pushing out of the military. And then we will compel you to take this vaccine. It's the exact same thing that we did with the bath party in Iraq. I had a front row seat for that. I was one of the guys that was, you know, training elements of the anti-Saddam militias when they did that. And I said, you guys, you're gonna, we're going to fire half the country and brand them as extremists all on, all on our own. That seems like a bad idea. And that's kind of when my skepticism <laughs> began. But that's exactly what's happening here in America. I mean, the same thing with the January 6th narrative. You know, people are being deprived of their constitutional rights. A lot of the country seems to be okay with that because they're like, well, that's not my side of it. Those aren't my people. So it's okay to deprive them of their constitutional rights. It's we're, we're living, We are living right now on that very slippery slope towards authoritarianism. Um, on January 6th, there were people who rioted. They did bad things and they hit cops and stuff like that. Uh, was it an insurrection, Joe Kent? No, absolutely not. I think that's the the, the most misleading um, and devious way to put it. I mean, by every measure, it was not an insurrection. Riot, sure. Okay, I'll give you I'll give you a riot. That's fine. Yeah. Um, but I think we need to be able to lay out exactly what happened on January 6th. We need full disclosure, release all the tapes. We need the federal government to answer the question that's on the tip of everyone's tongues right now. How many informatives, in, uh, operatives or agents or informants did you have in the crowd on January 6th? Specifically, what was their task? What was their communication? Um, who are these people? We, you know, Ray Epps is the most famous one, but there's others as well that we need that transparency because the narrative has been nothing but lies from day one. And this is one of my big issues of Jamie yeah. Herrera Butler is that that, that January 6th narrative has she been was dumb enough to believe it. She was. And here's the thing. If she would have said, hey, 
on January 6th, I, I was very scared, whatever. I thought it was an insurrection. I think Trump should have done more. I would disagree with her. But once the lies started coming out, I mean, we were told for months that Officer Sicknick was beaten to death by crazed Trump supporters. We caught them lying about that. Now, I would have way more respect for Jamie had she come out and said, you know what? I got lied to, too, and I'm mad about it, and I'm going to get to the bottom of it. I still think, you know, she could still hold some of her beliefs, but the way that she's gone along with that narrative, and that narrative has been used to brand half the country as terrorists or uh, extremists. It's been used to deprive some of the, the January 6th people of their constitutional rights. It's also been used to you know send the FBI counterterrorism task force uh, against parents that show up to school board meetings. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, this is my issue with Jamie is she either doesn't understand that and so she doesn't understand what's being weaponized against us or she simply doesn't care. I think she believes uh, Kevin McCarthy, which I think is a mistake in the first place because the guy can't talk. So pretty sure that if he can't talk, he can't think. But um, and I and I think he's a fine guy and all that stuff. But it's just a, uh, he will make a terrible speaker. Nevertheless, he'll be better than Nancy Pelosi. Uh, recently, there was a uh, study. Well, actually, it was a declaration by Homeland Security that said if you are against the narrative of the government, you are now a terror. Um, I'm trying to think of what the Garbage was. I just wrote a story about it the other day, but nevertheless, I mean, you're you're basically a terrorist. Um, what do you make of that? I mean, that that's just this narrative that that the, the national security state is using against people that dissent from you know the current regime's narrative, and, and it's very dangerous. So, I mean, here in Washington State, Jay Inslee is trying to say if you question the election, then you shouldn't be able to run for office. I mean, this is some of the most un-American. It's an assault on our free speech, but really, it has it has much more darker implications than I think we're we're used to dealing with here in America. This is what I've seen in third world countries with totalitarian regimes, where like if you dissent from the narrative and you dare question anything that the ruling class has to say, we will send the Praetorian Guard, we'll send the national security state, and we'll use them against you. And we've seen that time and time again, everything that's coming out about Russiagate, everything of January 6th, you know, the the FBI looking at parents at the school boards, it's the spreading of COVID disinformation. So they say that you can be shut down because of that. So again, I I really think if we don't rein in our national security state, we'll continue down this path, the slippery slope towards authoritarianism. The Russian collusion scandal was an op run by the Hillary Clinton campaign through her attorneys oh, yeah. and all of her her friendlies. And now we've just found out in the last 24 hours that indeed this apparatus was not only running the Russia's collusion scam, they were spying on Donald Trump's servers in office. Yeah, and if they'll do that to him, imagine what they'll do to the rest of us. And we've seen it with bulk collection with the Patriot Act. And they lied. I mean, they they told us and Adam Schiff, he he ran this lie through Congress as part of the impeachment hearings, part of the Russiagate hearings. They knew, they knew that they cooked all this up. They turned the most potent tools. I used to work in the intelligence community. They turned the most potent tools of the intelligence community against a presidential candidate against a sitting president, against General Flynn, Papadopoulos, all these other underlings as well, ruined their lives, no qualms about it, and then lied to the American people for three, almost four years, you know, and you still hear some people that are so, you know, brainwashed with this narrative that they, they tie in why we need to go to Russia now against Putin into this this narrative that was cooked up by the DNC. So again, if we're going to have these these powerful institutions, they have to be accountable to us. Bill Priestap has his job back. He's an attorney again. He lied on a FISA warrant and said that I think it was Papadopoulos was was not a CIA uh, right. uh, operative, and, and he, when he was, he was an informant. Yeah, it, no, it's, it's, a, it's astonishing. It's uh, it's, it's right to the core. Game. It's right to the core, and I think we're just hitting the 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 tip of the iceberg. I mean, and and how dirty and corrupt this is. Are you shocked? Um. 
You know, I stopped being shocked a while ago, but even some of this is shocking. I didn't think, you know, because I worked in the intelligence community and they, they read us the riot act that if we used any of this for personal gain, that, you know, we, we would be locked up and thrown away. And I believe them because I think that they would have locked me and any other, you know, just random rank and file guy. I think they would have locked us up and thrown away the key. But now I see all these political appointees, these senior members of the national security state that they were just doing. They were just writing FISA warrants. They were doing unmasking requests against American citizens. They were putting opposition political research into intelligence channels. I mean, it, it infuriates me because these those are the institutions that we need to protect the American people. And there are people out right now under the banner of those institutions that are risking their lives to protect Americans. Yet the senior leadership is acting in a political way against American people. It, it, it enrages me and disgusts me. And, and it's something that I'm, I'm very passionate about bringing accountability to when I get to Congress. I know you have to catch a flight, but I have a couple of last questions for you. Committee assignments, uh, when or if you reach the Congress. Yeah, so intelligence oversight for all the reasons we just listed. Uh, Same thing with armed services. You know, to spend a career in the military, uh, I I think our generals need to be held to account. Um, I think we need a lot more oversight in our military, how we use force. And then also uh, natural resources. I would love to be on the Natural Resources Committee to help uh, deregulate the natural resources industry, to get us energy independent once more, to revitalize our timber industry in the Pacific Northwest and and our fishing industry as well. How can you raise these two small children and run for office. I don't sleep very much. No, I've, I have a great family support. I've been very blessed. Um, I'm engaged to be married to, to an amazing woman who's oh know, great. Yeah, who stepped in and, and been great for us and for my children. Um, she's been great for us. My family lives close to us. They help out. My late wife's family. They were actually just out while I'm traveling. They came out and they're helping out with the kids too. So, um, and, and all the tragedy we've experienced, the family's gotten much closer, and so I'm very blessed with that. How did you meet your new? Uh fiance. Yeah, she's uh, so she's actually a veteran as well. So we didn't serve together in the same place, but we had some mutual friends and she was actually moving out to the area um, and we we just ended up talking and one thing led to another and so now here she is helping me out with with the kids and just I she's an uh, absolute godsend and a blessing. That's so cool. I'm congratulations on Thank that. You. Um, how do you stay fit and run for office? I wake up really early. <laughs> so for me, if it, it's um, I, I think just from being in the military for so long, uh, fitness has been like my outlet for a very long time. So that's one of the things that if I if I don't get in, you know, consistent workouts, I'm I'm just not me. So I, I wake up early and get it knocked out. That's just kind of the, the that's how I how I get it in. So for me, it's 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 a uh, it's definitely a mind body thing. My mind's not right if I haven't gotten in a workout. What do you do? So I do a lot of uh, weightlifting, just the power lifts, the Olympic lifts, some CrossFit. I, I row a lot. Um, I run when when the weather's not too terrible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Good for you. Um, well, okay. So now what does the rest of this campaign look like for you? It's happening in August and when the jungle primary occurs. And right now you are first in the list of candidates, which is pretty nice. At least as of November 2021. So what does it look like for you? Yeah, so just as we're going to be really, really busy, we've stayed busy the entire time. So we are kicking off our door knocking campaign um, in mid-March. And so we're going to try and knock on every single registered voter's door, uh, not once, but just but twice uh, before the primary and, and then before the general as well. So door knocking is going to be huge. We've been doing a pace of probably about three to four in-person town halls per week. We're going to keep that up because I really... I I love the town hall method. I think we're too separated from our political leaders nowadays. So I'm trying to do one um, 
basically one in every county at least a month. And then Clark County, our more populous county, I'm, I'm in down there like probably two, three times a week, um, just doing in-person town halls. Then obviously the media is huge as well, just to get the word out. But yeah, it's, it's going to be, um, it's going to be one with boots on the ground, knocking on doors and then talking to people at town halls. So that's, that's supposed to be, that's what we're going to be focused on. Have you been called a Nazi or canceled at all yet? Yeah. I mean, from the usual suspects, like, you know, what if I do, <laughs> if I do a, an interview with the far left or whatever, um, you know, honestly, I, I, I like doing the hostile interviews just because they're going to call you all the names anyways. You might as well at least get your message out there and, and hopefully reach out to some people. The interesting thing is the Trafalgar poll that put me in first place. Um, Trafalgar has been very accurate, but also 41 or 47% of people surveyed in that poll that put me a Trump endorsed guy, America first in first 47% self-identified as Democrats. So, I think this year, especially with the way the economy is going, with the medical freedom issue, I think we're bringing over a lot more people to our side. I think a lot of Americans are waking up to this this narrative that's been cast upon them for the past couple of years. Here's your elevator pitch. Tell people why you believe you trust them to conduct them their own lives. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, this country was, was found by rugged men, men and women um, who were operating on the principles that there's God-given rights and that our government must exist to protect those God-given rights. And I think that's something that we've moved further and further away from in our country. And we have to re- return to that, take our sovereignty 100 percent seriously. Uh, we have to fight for that every step of the way. And just remember that government is there to protect our God-given rights. Government doesn't give us any rights. The second the government starts thinking that they, they can award us rights when they so choose, as they've done for these last two years, that's when we, the people, have to get rid of that government and put in people that actually understand why this country is the most unique country in the history of the world because we protect God-given rights. Like the Canadian truckers for Canada. Yeah, God bless them. (laughs) Amen. Joe Kent, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. He's a sharp guy. Another person on the front lines, Julie Barrett, is on the front lines of the culture war which is a bloody battle of subterfuge by lawmakers who have apparently no respect for parental rights. Listen to Julie's personal story, which will curl your hair and what she's doing about it on behalf of all parents on the left coast, mest coast, and maybe even in your town too. Julie Barrett is the leader and founder of the organization called the Conservative Ladies of Washington. She's gotten involved on some of the thornier issues in one of America's most woke and dystopian states because of what happened in her own life, which she's going to share. One thing I learned about Julie's story on my friend Todd Herman's program was that it was shocking and an entire overreach of state government. You will find that too. Later, I learned that she was the same person leading the Conservative Ladies of Washington group. It took me that long to figure it out. Julie Barrett, welcome to the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. How are you? Hi, Victoria. I'm good. Thank you for having me. Yes, ma'am. Um, let me just. I'm I'm interested in in your story, obviously, but I did want you to tell me a little bit about this new state Senate bill that I think everyone in the United States should be watching out for, because Senate Bill 5883 is a bill that would give underage kids full rights over their bodies and give perfect strangers the ability to lord more authority over them, uh, that would be your child, than their parents actually do. But I think it might even be worse than that, if that's possible. Julie, tell me about this bill and how it relates to your story. Yeah, well, Senate Bill 5883, um, like you said, would give 
any minor child. Um, actually, it would give any adult um, ability to give consent to any minor child, and the age is not defined. So we don't, is that 13? Is it 12? Is it 8? It's it's, there's no definition on what age that would be. So really, you know, it gives people at school, um, you know, medical providers, the ability to, to give, um, children the consent that should be really be left in the hands of their parents. Is this a COVID related bill or is this something even more nefarious than that? As if that's not enough. I know. I think it's much more nefarious than that. And, you know, you referenced my story and and what we learned um, in the last year was that there is a a mature minor uh, mandate doctrine in Washington state that's been in place for many, many years, um, which gives uh, 13 year olds the ability to make their own mental health um, and medical decisions without parental consent. And a lot of a lot of parents, a lot of citizens don't even know that that law exists. And what Senate Bill 5883 does is it, it actually takes that even further. Um, and if, if that, if you can imagine that even being possible and, and just makes it worse than it already is. So in other words, let's just take COVID, for instance, at school, if the school nurse decides that you must have this or you may not be in school and the kid's going, well, I don't care. Do I get a free pizza pizza, which actually happened, by the way, um, then that school nurse has the authority to be in loco parentis and, in fact, even more than that, and be able to lord that over your kid and give them consent. Correct. That's correct. And, you know, it was interesting. I was listening to the Washington State Board of Health. Uh, they had their technical advisory group meeting uh, on Thursday last week. And one of the people that's on that technical advisory group was saying that, you know, there are a lot of students in schools who want to get the vaccine, but say that they can't because their parents won't allow it. <laughs> please. Really? That's what she said. I I mean, to me, it was like, you're just looking at their agenda right there is, you know, they're coming at it with, oh, we're trying to help these kids whose terrible parents won't let them get the vaccine. Um, And, uh, you know, it was it was very transparent to me when she made that statement. And uh, I think a lot of a lot of parents who were listening to that meeting just about blew a gasket. I wish they had. But that's (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, we we are right. But I think that's what they're using. You know, COVID is just an excuse to push this agenda of, you know, the assault on parental rights even further to the left. What do you think is the more nefarious part of what their backstory is, the reason, the reasoning and the rationale for changing the law? Well, I really believe that they want control of our kids. I mean, think of how easy it is to control the society. If they can get control of our children from a very young age and start indoctrinating them with their agenda, then they, you know, makes the whole society easier to control. If you start early, get them away from their, you know, conservative, Christian, Bible-believing, you know, even non-Bible-believing, you know, just parents that, you know, believe in, you know, just family values. They don't want that. The, they want to destroy the nuclear family. You know, Dr. Nancy Piercy wrote a book called Love Thy Body, to which I've referred 
uh, multiple times on the radio as well as on the podcast. And she explains how parents are so easily cut out of the picture. And I, she did a podcast recently, and I basically transcribed what she had to say. And on parenthood, it used to be from time immemorial that people thought parenthood was based on biology, which is where all of our rights come from. They're always the touchstone in in time has always been biology, married people, uh, you know, what your gender is, all of these things. And the woman who bore the child was the mother and her legal husband was considered the biological father. And this was called the presumption of parenthood. And that used to be the law. And the same-sex couples could obviously adopt, but until recently, the same-sex partner was not allowed to be on the birth certificate. So in order to change that... Same-sex advocates said that's not fair. It's discrimination. We need to have exactly the same rights as people who are uh, heterosexual couples. And so in 2017, the court agreed, passed a ruling stating so long as the same-sex couple was legally married, the parent who was not biologically related, uh, related got to be on the birth certificate. So now parenthood is not related to biology. It is a legal definition, definition, a legal construct that the state now creates, wherein before, whereas before it was something that was just a natural right. So you are not technically the parent of your child unless the state says you are. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. And so you found that out personally, didn't you? Oh, yes. And do you mind talking a little bit about your case or is that just like, are you just, no, your I, head's going to explode if you have to do it again? <laughs> nope, I can talk about it. Absolutely. So how did it all begin? And why is it that you live in a separate state than your daughter? How's that? Yeah, that's a, that's a good, that's the question, isn't it? Um, so last March, I dropped my daughter off for church youth group on a Wednesday afternoon and everything was fine. I'll see you after church. Bye mom. I love you. Um, and I got a call, uh, shortly before I was scheduled to go pick her up that she was suicidal. And, um, ultimately she ended up, uh, being transported to Seattle children's emergency room. And because of COVID, they said, you know, you can't come in. We'll, we'll give you a call um, after we have a chance to evaluate her. And then we'll go over next steps and discharge and all of that. And so they called me uh, the next, they called me in the middle of the night and, and things weren't going well. So they said, well, um, we're just going to let her sleep and we'll call you in the morning. So they called me in the morning and they said, um, your daughter's decided that she, um, is going to go to this homeless shelter that we have arranged for her. Oh, and isn't that nice of them? Uh, yeah. I said, what are you talking about? Why would she go to a homeless shelter? She has a home. And they said, well, she doesn't want to come home. And because she's 14, she gets to decide where she's going to go. <laughs> and I'm just thinking, oh, my goodness. And I don't know if you have children, but I do. <laughs> okay. So you know that... Um, you know, teenagers are fickle people. Uh, yeah, <laughs> just by nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I was just kind of exasperated. And I thought, okay, well, I'll, you know, she's going to get to this homeless shelter at, you know, it's in Seattle, it's a homeless shelter. This is a kid from the suburbs. Um, <laughs> and she won't want to stay and I'll go pick her up. Well, they, um, from the from the get go, they would not let us talk to her, wouldn't let us see her. 
had a friend with uh, who's an officer with Seattle PD stop by to do a welfare check on her. You know, he knows her very well. So he went to, to check on her. They wouldn't even let him in the door. And they have all these anti-police, as you can imagine, yeah. anti-police signs on the front of the shelter. And um, I had her... I had gotten her phone after everything was kind of going down at, at church. And so I had gotten access to, to her social media and learned as she, she ended up being there for 10 days. So over the course of the 10 days, I'm kind of watching her social media because they had given her a laptop. Oh. And so she, yeah. <laughs> so I'm reading uh, social media messages that she's sending to friends telling them that this shelter has gotten her an attorney and they're working with her to file a chintz petition. What's that? It's a child in need of services. I'd never heard of it. <laughs> and I think in theory, it's for, you know, probably children who don't come from loving homes and have, you know, food and shelter and, you know, all of that. And uh, so they had gotten her attorneys. I, I they have these nonprofit attorneys that work with them um, and were preparing to go to court so that um, she would basically become a um, uh, they would have become her legal guardian. The shelter would have. Um, this is the Paul G. Allen Hope wow. Center. Oh, the Paul. Oh, that's right. The Paul, the Hope yeah. Center, but not for parents. The Hope Center. <laughs> um, and so over the course of the 10 days, she was there at one point they had, given her a razor, um, which she did not use to shave. Um, and so after self-harming, she had to go back to Seattle Children's Hospital. And while she was there, they changed all of her um, medical information to have their contact info, their names, their address. They took my husband and I off of her records. And Seattle Children's allowed this. Um. And so the, um, you know, we kind of, we realized we were racing against the clock, and yeah, no throughout kidding. this throughout this ten day period, we had obviously learned about a lot about Washington state laws and realized that we have to get her out of Washington if we're going to be able to help her. So we had arranged for her to um, go to um, treatment in uh, Arizona, and so we went to pick her up on a Monday, and they would not let us in the building. They wouldn't let us see her. So I called 911 and they sent a couple officers out. Those two officers went up and spent about an hour talking to the shelter staff. And then they came back to us and said, we have never seen anything like this. They are holding your daughter hostage and we have to call for backup. Wow. And it was, it ended up being eight officers in total. The ordeal was about six hours long. Six uh, hours? Yes. Mm -hmm. Why? Uh, because they were, um, the police actually had to. Like a hostage enter. negotiation. Yes, it was a hostage negotiation. Oh, freaking yes. A. Oh, my gosh. And they ended up having to go into the the shelter and physically carry her out. Um, and, you know, she was not in good shape when they brought her out. Um, I, I, I am 99.9% .9 sure she was on some kind of drugs, but I don't know because it's Washington. So the drug test, I can't have the results for without her consent. Oh my gosh. That's so insane. 
Um, and so there was, you know, while they were trying to stabilize her once they got her out um, and waiting for a medic, that took probably another hour. So it was just this long, drawn out, dramatic, you know, it felt like we were in a Lifetime movie. Yeah. It was it was that unreal. Um, and then they take her back to Children's because we haven't figured out yet that Children's is part of the problem, which shame on me. <laughs> Uh, that should have been obvious from the get-go. But um, they take her back to Children's because we need to get her stabilized. And as soon as we get to Children's and they evaluate her, they come out and they say, well, what's the problem? Why can't she just go back to the shelter? That's where she wants to be. Oh, my gosh. And my jaw just about hit the floor. And I said to that mental health professional, I said, we want her transferred to a hospital out of this state as soon as possible. Well, they fought us another two days on that. They did not want to transfer her. And it took our own therapist that has worked with uh, our daughter previously that called them and said, you need to do what this family wants. And so she was transferred from Seattle to a mental hospital in Boise um, where we could actually get her stabilized and get test results of everything that they were working with on her so that we could actually start figuring out what's going on and what kind of treatment does she need. Um, and so she did, she did do some, uh, treatment in Arizona. And then we actually, uh, about a month and a half ago found a, a place that was better suited for her in Idaho. So she's back in Idaho now. Um, but we can't, you know, I look at this bill and, and it terrifies me. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you saw the, my post on Twitter, but I spent, you know, some time in Idaho with her these last few days. Yeah. And as I was leaving, I just, I was so sad because I can't have my daughter close to me because of the laws in this state. Mm-hmm. I mean, either and, that or you're going to have to move, right? I mean. It, well, exactly. I mean, I couldn't, uh, there's no you, treatment you are not, place you are not in Washington. To, you are not allowed to be a parent in Washington. No. They could, if, if she was in a, a similar place in Washington, they would do all the medical, you know, medicine changes, all the evaluations. I would have access to none of it. In Idaho, she was sent there when she was initially taken to Boise and you were able to stabilize her. Were you able to ascertain if they had given her any kind of mind altering drugs or uh, any kind of substances that altered her reality, if you will? Do you mean when she was in Washington? Yeah. I mean, at the shelter? Yeah. Um, The, the professionals in um, the medical team in Idaho said that it too long had passed. And those, those substances typically don't stay in the system for that long. So it had, by the time they got her, it had been like three days since Mm. she had been at the shelter. But they said it's very possible inhalants are very hard um, for them to pick up on, a, you know, on a blood test. Um, and, you know, this this shelter was a co-ed shelter, but they only had <sighs> girls in the shelter. And all of the girls, except for my daughter, were all um, under the guardianship of the shelter. They weren't there temporarily. They weren't there to get help and then go back to their families. They were under the guardianship. Now, uh, someone asked on Twitter, I think it might be a mutual friend of ours, uh, if you could petition for guardianship over your own daughter and bring her back to Washington State. 
there, it, there are some things that you can do. Um, you know, you can file some documents legally um, that would give you a little bit more authority over your child. Your child has to um, consent to it. Um, so that would all be part of that process. So, you know, if you're not in a crisis situation, that would probably be something that, that parents could do. Um, you know, my daughter's situation is, is a little bit different because of her, um, mental condition, um, and the, the instability that she has that even with, you know, court documents and stuff, I still feel like she would be too vulnerable to these people on the left. Mm. Um, if they got their hands on her, it would be very difficult. I mean, we'd really have to fight in court, even with the court documents, we'd still have to fight to get her back. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so the, the children's hospital thought it was perfectly normal to send her back to a homeless shelter where they would yes. take over guardianship of her, and that would be an improvement over her own parents. And why did they think that? Uh, got me. I have, I have no idea. And, you know, I should also tell you that while those 48 hours that my daughter was at Children's before she went to Boise, a lawyer con- that lawyer contacted her in the shelter or I'm sorry, the lawyer contacted her while she was in the emergency rooms at Children's. Children's put that call through. Oh, but they wouldn't put yours through, would they? They wouldn't put ours through. And the only way we knew is because the attorney was using her school email to try to connect with her, and we had the laptop. What was going on with your kid? Did you know any of this before this whole thing played out in your life, like a bad movie or... Well, um, my children have uh, some childhood trauma. They were abused by their biological father um, for several years when they were very young before I found out about it. So I actually had been, I'd been in Washington courts for 35 months um, fighting to protect my kids from him, from their father. Um, and, you know, was <sighs> awarded, you know, and, and, so I, I had to jump through a lot of hoops um, just to protect my kids from, you know, their their bio dad, which, you know, it's, it's all kind of crazy considering how easy it is to <laughs> take our rights away. Um, yeah. So so my kids, ha- you know, had that trauma. And so um, they've all been, you know, in therapy as children. And um, my older son is 18. And when he was about the same age, when he was 14, um, he kind of had another round of, you know, trauma and acting out. And he did a wilderness therapy program that was very successful for him. And now he's, you know, graduated and going off to college and, and doing really well. Um, for, For my daughter, when COVID happened and the lockdowns in school, you know, you know, was online, that was very difficult for her. And she got very depressed and struggled with anxiety. And so we'd already been working on getting her back into therapy and, um, and all of that. I didn't realize um, the extent of her mental illness. And, um, you know, I have learned a lot since and, and, you know, children who are sexually abused or neglected as, you know, as children, 
as they hit their teen years, um, they, they, it's typical for them to encounter a lot of um, mental challenges. Mm. Yeah. And she's doing better? Um, not today. <laughs> oh. Um, it's quite a roller coaster. Um, and so we're, we're not having a good, a good day, <laughs> but, um, she's in the right place. And, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of peace knowing that she's in a safe place, mm. uh, where we, where we get to be part of her healthcare and helping her, um, and the people that she's with include us in all of the decisions. <laughs> Yeah, I imagine that you get to the point where you're you're not terribly trusting of people who say that you will have those rights accorded to you. Right. So do you, you firmly believe that they're looping you in on everything? Yes, absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, this state of play in this law, in the law in the state of Washington is just horrific. I mean, no parent actually has control over their child and the well-being of their child if someone in the state decides that they have a differing point of view. Right. So let's say a kid is has a dalliance with, uh, you know, he's confused about gender or something. And that child then decides that he's going to, I, I want to be a girl, I want to be a, whatever it is. I mean, the opposite of what they are. And then the school teachers say, well, you know, that's who that person is. And that's how they decide that they are going to uh, identify. And so all of a sudden, you have really no choice about what to, how to treat your child. Um, and if you decide that you're going to do something that they don't agree with, they could literally take your kid away from you. Yes, they could. I want to tell you about a another story that's very much connected to this. And you're not going to believe <laughs> you're not going to believe this. So my daughter who's in Idaho has a twin sister. Oh, wow. And her twin sister has autism and she's in a special program at the high school. She's in ninth grade. And last fall, uh, she actually, uh, I got, she had gone to spend a night at a friend's house and it was Sunday morning and I get a call from the Hope Center. Oh, no. No. <laughs> and they said, um, we just want to let you know that your daughter such and such, um, wants, you know, to come stay here. And I, I, I think my heart just about stopped. And I said, excuse me, is this the Paul G. Allen Hope Center? And I just, I flipped a lid and I said, if my child sets property, sets yeah, foot on your property and, um, anyway, <laughs> Whoa. Got the got my daughter back home before she left her friend's house. And uh. what happened was I, I, I couldn't figure out what happened. Like, how did my how did she even know to call this place? Well, what happened was the Paul G. Allen Hope Center did a special presentation to her special needs class at the high school. Oh, geez. And told these kids. If you need a safe place to stay, you can call <gasps> us. Wow. Children with special needs don't always understand what that means. Like, oh, I don't want to do, do my chores today, so I'll call that Hope Center place so I don't have to stay at home. <laughs> mm. So the school allowed 
these people to come in and, and do this special presentation to the special needs class. And my stepson is also at the same school. And so I, you know, I thought maybe this was an assembly before I figured out um, that it was just to that class and he hadn't heard anything about it. Huh. So they, they specifically target um, your special needs at risk children. And, you know, in these, you know, kind of classes, a lot of the kids are LGBTQ, you know, because those are the kids that they can easily mold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So you almost lost your your second kid. Yes. I can't yep. believe you're staying in Washington. Why are you still there? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's a good question. Um I you know, it's it that's a, and that's a hard answer, right? Because my parents are here. I'm born and raised here. I've been here my entire life. My husband, you know, has a good job here and mm. he's the, you know, primary breadwinner and um but, you know, it's it, uh, you can't parent here. Yeah. You know, and I told my my daughter, my the the other twin that's that's here. I said, you know, if if you were to go stay at that homeless shelter, I can't get you back. They won't let you come home. I mean, she doesn't understand, you know, doesn't understand how how all this works. And so, um, you know, we have to have these conversations. But, you know, she, my my goal is to get her out of out of the public school because that's, you know, gateway to hell is what that sounds like. Exactly. Yes, it is. Holy crap. For a number of reasons. And so in your job as the founder of the Conservative Ladies of Washington, which is quite successful, I understand, you have probably heard a few more stories like this, or people are willing to share with you that which they would be afraid to share with anyone else to because they don't want to be depicted as, well, we're terrible parents, and so that's why they wanted to take my kid away from me, because clearly I'm obviously a bad parent. Right. So you've heard it all, haven't you? I've heard some some stories. It's It's amazing to me how many people, though, hear my story and say, oh, but I have a really good relationship with my kids. That won't happen to me. Oh, oh, yeah. We had an incorrigible 15-year-old niece living with us for a while. I mean, literally incorrigible. And she ran away multiple times and trying to get her back and this and that. And it was just, it was absolute hell. And she just went off on her own and you know, doesn't want to have anything to do with us. And it's just a heartbreaking situation. She yeah. came back into our lives a little bit later when she needed some help and we helped and we love her and everything like that. But, you know, you're helpless. You, you can't really, huh. I mean, you're, you have no control. None. Right. Right. So about changing the law, is that what you plan to do or fight, fight this one, obviously? Well, I, I, um, you know, my situation or, you know, this experience br brought awareness to this law. And I think, you know, it's not lost on me that I, you know, have a loud voice and I'm not afraid to use it. Good. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I originally started working with uh, Representative Brad Clippert, who reached out to me um, shortly after this happened last April. And, you know, how can I help you? And so I've been learning a lot through him about the current law and then, um, you know, this this law that we've got 
um, this bill that we've got right now um, is kind of the the hot thing that needs our attention. And, you know, I have to tell you, I get really frustrated with the distraction of masks because ah. people are like, take the masks off my kids. Yes, take the mask off your kid. But while you're worried about the mask and people are, you know, sending, mailing Jay Inslee their mask, it's like, the Democrats love that because you're not paying attention to this law that they're about to pass, this bill yeah. that they're about to put into law. Yep. Transportation. It's really going to take away. Yes. Transportation oh my bill and tax increases and, I mean, all kinds of additional things that are will be on the onus of the taxpayer to now cough up. And they didn't they weren't paying attention because they were worried about the masks. I mean, yes. it's, it's a good thing to worry about, but it's just uh, now... You know, what have they what other nefarious things have they done <laughs> while you weren't looking or while other people weren't looking? Oh, they do hundreds of nefarious things while we're distracted. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is a short time period, right? It's a short session. It's going to end in a few weeks. So let's zero in on this and stop these bills from becoming law while we can before it's too late. Yeah, this is just this is really bad. Really, really bad. But you see, yeah. now what uh, Dr. Piercy was talking about was everything from m- literal marriage rights to, uh, you know, transgenderism, had, how everything has become more a social construct rather than that which is attached to the actual biology of the individual. Uh, parenthood, you know all too well, is a transactional kind of a thing now. And it's up to someone else to determine whether or not you're the parent anymore. That did not used to be the way it was, Julie. You're a younger woman than I am. That's not the way it used to be. And uh, making sure that you have rights, the natural rights. And here they've come in, and because of these U.S. Supreme Court decisions— the state lawmakers have taken and run with that and said, well, OK, well, then let's get let's put in other laws, other ideas of, of uh, laws that we think is great. And they may be just fine. They may be just fine for most people. But the problem is they then become detached from personhood. And she says they're destroying personhood. And yeah. that's it's quite scary. It's not unfixable, but it may take a generation to do it. Just At like least, the abortion yeah. law, just the uh, 40 years of the abortion law. And it's like everybody, everybody on the right and left says that is the worst Supreme Court decision since Kiramatsu or or the worst Supreme Court decision since Plessy versus Ferguson. But you know what? We're not going to fix it because, you know, stare decisis and all that stuff. And so here we are, 40 years hence, and people are going, oh, Roe v. Wade, oh, Roe v. Wade. And it's like, no, it's Casey. <laughs> and by the way, it's a terrible law. Even Ruth Bader Ginsburg said it was awful. So, mm-hmm. I mean, she goes, I like abortion. She's fine with abortion. But she could have done it. A different way. And indeed, they could have done whatever it is that they have their heart's desire to do a different way, but they didn't choose to do it this way. They re they detached people from their person. And that has meant everything. That has yep. meant everything. Yeah. And that's not right. It's not right. No. And you know that uh, Washington is has a bill going through it just passed the House about changing, expanding abortion rights to pregnant individuals. Not just pregnant women. They had to change it to make it individuals. Oh, brother. Oh, brother. Because men can have babies. Yep. Yep. Wow. Okay. Well, Julie, thank you very much for your time. Anything else I need to know about this case and this law? Uh, We just need people to to write to their representatives and 
um, ask them not to pass it. I always tell people, remind your reps that it's, it's an election year and you're taking notes. Um, <laughs> if, if they pass this, um, you know, I mean, it, it, your kid's going to go to school and get an abortion and it's going to be just, just fine. Perfectly legal. Yeah. You'll deal with the fallout. It later. already pretty much is, but. <laughs> right. But I mean, it's going to be one of those, you know, they're 22 and all of a sudden they realize, you know, what they've done and you're, you're left picking up the pieces and you're going, well, why? What happened? You know, well, you know, it happened when I was 14 and had exactly. surgery and nobody bothered to tell you. And there you have it. Well, there you go. Well, all this garbage that they're doing, this is, this is fueling the mental health crisis for our youth. Oh, no doubt about it. Yeah. In the name of doing our by doing good by our kids in the name right. of doing that. It's hackneyed at the best. Julie Barrett, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Adult in the Room podcast. Follow me and support me over at victoriataft.locals.com. Support this podcast on Anchor FM. You can find me on all the legacy social media, but I'm also on Truth Social somewhere. I can't, I don't know if I've got my invitation yet. And of course, Getter, as well as MeWe and Minds and all the rest of them. Until they cut me off. Also find my writing at PJ Media. Here's where to find it. PJmedia.com slash columnist slash Victoria hyphen Taft. All right. I think that connects the dots for everybody. Until next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Adult in the Room podcast. To keep the programs you like to listen to, please rate this podcast with a fantastic five stars on your Apple podcast app every time you listen and give me a great review. Plus, of course, subscribe to the podcast. It makes a difference with the big tech algorithm and the big tech oligarchs, and it makes us easier to find. Please get in touch with me on all the big tech stuff. Yeah, we're still there. Using the names Victoria Taft or the Adult in the Room podcast on MeWe, Parlor, Minds, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to 1A Cast for imaging, editing, and production. The fantastic song is Gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for Antifa versus Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by Raps by RC. The Adult in the Room podcast is also a production of Flamingo Road Studios. Remember, head up, heart out, and strive to be the adult in the room. Till next time, mischief managed. <laughs>